0: Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, managing editor at The Fried Egg. Today, we have part two of our deep dive into Fried Egg founder Andy Johnson's trip to the Carolinas. Part one was all about Kiowa, and this time we focus on municipal golf. But first, this episode is brought to you by The Fried Egg Print Shop. You'll find it in our pro shop at proshop.thefriedegg.com. We have a newly redesigned print section, freshly stocked with beautiful photography of great golf courses. The latest additions include photos of Wild Horse Golf Club in Nebraska and the ocean course at Kiowa. The light, by the way, that Andy got at Kiowa is just sensational. So check it out, ProShop.TheFriday.com, and take a look at our prints. You can get them framed, mounted on metal, or you can just order the print itself. Great way to support what we do all right so we've got a bit of a hybrid episode for you today the first 30 minutes will actually be a conversation between andy johnson and troy miller troy miller is the architect who recently did a seth rayner inspired renovation of charleston municipal golf course it's really cool work and we also have an article and a video about it you can find those on the friday.com and on our youtube page after the interview with troy miller Andy and I will come in with some additional thoughts about Charleston Muni and also about some public courses he saw in Asheville, North Carolina. And this discussion gives us a chance to touch on some bigger ideas about municipal golf in general and how it might find a way forward in the 21st century. So without further ado, here's Andy and Troy Miller.
1: Tell us a little bit about your path. So I grew up here in Charleston, grew up in the golf industry. Uh, my father's a golf professional. And because of that, I was exposed to some really great architects early on in life, most notably Pete Dye. When we were building the Ocean Course, that was I was nine years old in 1989 when that started. And so I got to spend a lot of time with Pete. And then over the course of the next decade growing up in Charleston, got to work on renovation projects with Fazio's group and Nicholas's group. And um, inevitably ended up landing with uh, what was probably Pete's greatest uh, giver of work over his career, Landmark Land Company. Pete did about 40 golf courses for Landmark through the 70s and 80s. And when I uh, came out of grad school at University of Georgia, um, I got picked up by Landmark Land Company as as an in-house architect. Very similarly to the way that um, that Schm- that Smitt and Curley were uh, back in the '70s, and uh, and so I was there for about ten years doing mostly international Apes Hill and Barbados and in Spain, um, Arcos Gardens, and worked in Ireland a bit and um, Lake Presidential in Maryland, and so uh, so yeah, I was with Landmark through 2015. The crash hit like a lot of real estate companies, and there's no question that Landmark was a was a golf centric. Resort residential developer, and um, when the crash hit in 08, it, it took its toll on Landmark, and Jerry Barton, our CEO, passed away in 2018, and so uh, it, it, it was it was kind of a, a closing of a chapter. So,
2: when the crash happened, obviously everything halts how did you pivot you know in your professional life yeah, I mean obviously sure. everything at that to that point have been golf
1: yes absolutely so starting out as a golf course architect with a with a real estate development company gives you a lot of opportunities to learn a lot of different parts of the business um, because as much as we would all as golf purists love to believe that it's just pure golf all the time there's a lot that goes into it and around it and so what I was able to do through 2008 9 10 11 all the way through the mid 2000 was really pick up the development side and understand how to build a community and how to build the presence of a golf course and, and, and how that golf course really grows with the amenities that go along with it. And so I, you know, got more into the development side of things, um, uh, marketing, real estate, construction, the whole nine yards, Um, and so was really very fortunate to be in that position at that time. And the thing that's really interesting, I think, for a group of guys that came out of school in the mid-2000s, I always say that I saw the best and the worst that my industry will ever be in the first five years of my career, which I think is, is pretty valuable because it gives you a certain amount of perspective when things get a little too frothy or when things look like they're not very good. You can always look back at those years and say, eh, it's been worse. So
2: yeah and going through that kind of stuff obviously like you've had to develop different skills obviously I, I imagine that you feel like you've developed just as a professional more and it probably is going to help you the next 20 years that all the experience that you've gone through
1: oh sure absolutely I think that it, it really shows the the importance of market and importance of what you're trying to achieve that you know there are Courses for horses, and there are there are sites for specific golf courses and in specific projects. And um, in the mid 2000s, I think the thing that I learned the most about how hot the golf market was in the early 2000s was, it was just free flowing capital, and people were building golf courses wherever they could find a spot to do it, and. It was one of those things where there wasn't a lot of thought given to is this the right product for the right market at the right time? And so those are the first three questions I usually ask myself before I get involved with the project. Is it the right project for the right market at the right time?
2: Do you have any examples, maybe without naming names or
1: that that where you were like, Well, this isn't gonna work, but we're gonna do it anyways. <laughs> you know, I saw so I saw a lot of these, especially after two thousand and eight, because what happened was we actually started to kind of put together a list of all of these projects that were kind of in limbo. We called it the zombie book. It was the walking dead, all of these projects that had started, some of them had been completed all the way to opening, and then weren't able to really get over the hump because of the recession. And some of them were just wrong timing. Some of them were just the wrong product. And I and I can think of a few that were on sites that had no business being golf courses, where they may have spent you know in the close to eight figure range blowing things up and still we're nowhere nearer having a site for a golf course that um you just kind of sit back and you go man what are we doing here mm-hmm. um and so i think that's that's there's a lesson to be learned there and, and taking the path of least resistance when it comes to design is always a good thing um but you have to look at it not just in the lay of the land but also in the market and where it exists so
2: with the obviously projects the amount of them, sheer amount of them, a lot different. How have just the projects that come across your desk that you get to look at or, you know, evaluate, how have those changed from before the crash to after the crash?
1: Yeah, well, I think certainly there is um, there is a much greater emphasis on history today. And, um, you know, I think that trying to look in, there is such a, a big piece of this uh, renovation, restoration world that we're seeing so much of these days. And I think that people are really looking back at, you know, what has been historically successful. I think one of the biggest things that's changed from a real estate perspective is the fact that 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 monolithic, big, single-family lot golf development is completely archaic and is a dinosaur. And I don't think we'll ever see it again. Uh, I might eat my words on that. But, you know, I think that now trying to figure out the right way to to try to create a market and try to create a project with different types of real estate. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of things that probably because of the coming of age of millennials and some of the, their habits and the way that things are there, there, there's not as much uh, desire to own the big McMansion in the master plan golf course community. You know, I think that's, that's something that has changed significantly with the projects. Talk,
2: talk about Creating a market, you mentioned that. Like, what you know, creating a market today versus the old model of uh, real estate play. Yeah, like ba- pure real estate, big houses, golf course, yeah. with houses on it.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think through the early two thousands, there was definitely a formula out there. You know, you got a name architect, you got a uh, an equestrian center. Um, you know, you, you had two or three, you checked a few boxes and you had a glossy picture in one of the good magazines or in a full page spread in one of the big national circulations. And then you lived off of that for the first couple of year, years of sales and created, kind of created that monster that way. And, and often we're targeting different places as second home, depending on where you were in the country and, um, and their longtime habits of where people traveled. But, uh, today it is much more about trying to suit the market that exists trying to induce a market these days i think is is a is a much more difficult road to hoe and while there have been some great examples of it and i think that a lot of the very remote golf destination stuff that's happened over the last 20 years is a great example of how you create a market um, and take people to places they've never been because of the quality of the sites. That's the one opportunity that we're going to continue to have is quality of remote sites to go create a market. Otherwise, when you're talking about creating markets, you're really looking at what's there today. What's the what's the player looking for? What's the missing piece in any given city or any given region that you think, hey, this has got an opportunity to survive and, and succeed? I'd say that's a good way of, of trying to think, of, think through a project on the 40,000-foot level.
2: I think that kind of lends... Well into the conversation of what you're doing here in Charleston, um, obviously, a lot of people have seen pictures, um, heard a little bit about your work at Charleston Muni, but then you also are working on some a few other developments. Talk about Charleston, the golf market, before you started working at Muni, at the Muni, and you know what you. Kind of saw where the maybe strengths are and weaknesses and holes in the market where you're trying to create a market here.
1: Sure. Yeah. I think that Charleston and I am completely a homer on this because as a born and raised Charlestonian, I feel very strongly about Charleston's place in golf. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say that this was the birthplace of golf in North America back to 1739. Really prehistoric golf. Every, everybody everybody's got seems to have everybody's a claim. <laughs> got a claim. I <laughs> promise you nobody can go back to 1739. And I really consider that prehistoric because it's pre-old Tom Morris. Yeah. And so when we talk about Harleston Green and, and playing golf downtown Charleston what is Colonial Lake in the 1700s. I think that's a much that that I, I think that wins. <laughs> and so uh, my yeah. But with Charleston today, you know, it's interesting growing up around the resort at Kiowa and what has happened out there and the influence of Pete um, and, and the Ocean Course. You know, we've got this this great destination golf course and we have great Golden Age golf here at the Country Club of Charleston and Yeamans Hall. But then we have a lot of also-rans. We have a lot of golf here that never really created a golf destination out of Charleston. People came to Charleston to see the history, to see the the city, and they play golf while they were here. But we have a lot of golf courses in the city proper that are good enough to play while you're here, but none that are really good enough to come play. And so my hope is that over the course of the next five to ten years, we'll actually elevate the Charleston market save Kiowa and think about Ocean Course as one of those belt loop kind of places as a place to come visit and to play golf and to really have an experience of playing two or three golf courses and experience some really good golf.
2: Well and that's the thing I, I, I think there's a tremendous you talk about markets and holes, holes in markets I always have said is you know urban golf for, for a golfer that is an older golfer that has a family or a partner that might not play golf the ability to play golf in a city, go to a cool city. I mean, like Charleston, I think is most well known for its restaurants, its nightlife, it's, you know, the things you could do when you come to Charleston. It's a great destination city. And if you just have, you know, golf that people know, hey, I could go play here and see something pretty cool, mm-hmm. it's going to attract people because Kiwa is a great place, and it's very close to Charleston in relation to many destination courses. But it is a haul to get out there. You're going to have a long day out there. And then by the time, it's a full-day event versus having something that is relatively close to the city and able to experience and be back by, you know, not miss much of the day, you know, with your family.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And so Kiowa, that's why I really say Kiowa is a separate thing, no different than Sea Island being somewhat out from other major metropolitan areas. And so really the idea at Charleston Municipal was being a 1929 golf course, being built at the same time as Yeamans Hall and the Country Club. And being able to see, if you squint it a little bit, you could see some of those classic features of a Rainer design. And so it really kind of fell to, to the bottom line of saying, let's, let's really enhance this and give it an experience that the general public just doesn't have otherwise when it comes to this style of architecture. And so it, it was something that I felt like if we did, and we did it right, and we really enhanced the features that you would see on a Rainer McDonald golf course, it would bring people that were visiting the city to experience golf in the city. And we're talking five minutes from downtown Charleston. And so this does really open up that opportunity. And what that does even more so is it allows the the general public of the locals to continue to have a municipal golf course that they can be very proud of, that they can play for a very low rate and be subsidized by guest play at a slightly higher rate, which is still below market for a public daily fee in Charleston. And that that subsidy should allow the golf course to stay in the kind of shape it needs to stay in and should allow for it to uh, continue to really get enhanced. Yeah, it,
2: with with your project, I think obviously so many people go to their local muni, um, whether, you know, so many in urban areas and they dream about the ability to be able to reimagine the golf course and update it and give it, put a little, you know, TLC into it. Talk about the process of going through that and, and getting it through the city. Where did it start? How did how did it come about and and how did it get to where it is today with the finished product?
1: Sure, yeah. So one of the things that it definitely takes is is a lot of passion from the people involved, from the people in leadership and dating back to really 2015 was the first conversation that I had With the mayor, who basically said, Hey, I want to do something about Charleston Muni. And I said, Okay, well, let me take a look at this. And I went at that point and started drawing conceptual plans and came back not only with a conceptual plan, but also a pro forma as to why it made sense for the city and how it was going to create a return for the city. And so at that point, we came back and decided to go ahead and put together a 501c3, the Friends of the Muni, that would be part of that charitable arm that would gain us some of that fundraising arm. So the way that the project was a originally intended was to basically have two thirds of the money come from the city and a third of the money come privately raised. And we've pretty much achieved that throughout the course of the last few years. The funding mechanism took several years because it had to go through a bond referendum that was part of another recreation bond. And then the process itself is heavily scrutinized because it's a city project that has to go through city capital projects. And so um, the process is not that of a typical private um development and so it does take some effort and it takes some time but i think if you get the right people involved and really it's about the passion and there were so many people in charleston that just loved that place and my family history dates back to the 30s there my grandfather caddied there my father's first job in golf was there and in, in the late 60s his first job as a professional and so there were so many people along the way that just said, we care deeply about it. How can we help? How can we make this happen? And it wasn't just monetarily, but it was also some political pressure um, that really got the project going. With With regards to the pro forma, creating, you know, showing the
2: value, because I think this is where so many people, like, how, do you, how did you go about presenting the case that, hey, if we do this, you know, this is going to go from something that loses
1: money for the city
2: to something that's going to be something that brings in revenue for mm-hmm. the city.
1: Yeah. And the biggest thing there is really looking at what is the market rate for a non-resident to come play golf. And at the top, top end of that, when it comes to municipal golf courses, you've got places like Torrey Pines and Bethpage Black. And while we're never trying to achieve those levels, what it showed us was, hey, we've got market rate to come play golf as a, as a visitor to Charleston we've got a lot of room for growth there. And so that was really the biggest change in the revenue line of being able to say, hey, we we can go achieve 10,000 rounds. We do 60,000 rounds a year on on Muni. And so if 10,000 of those were out of town play at a slightly higher rate, all of a sudden that's gonna subsidize this thing, allow us to spend the money we need to from a maintenance perspective to keep it up and not create any kind of problems in terms of, of accessibility for all of the local residents.
2: And I think this is where this project's a little bit different than a lot of projects. You see munis go down this road where they put money into their golf course, but oftentimes it's money where they're putting a lot of money in, but they aren't getting a drastically different product from what they had. How did you play the architecture into this? And and I imagine... You know, just thinking common sensely, it uh, that had a lot to do to say. This is how we attract money. Yes. You know how we attract out of town money is with this, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think that the whole idea, and, and we've talked a lot. Charleston is a very historic town, and we've got a role to play in the history of uh, the history of America, and the history of golf, and the history of the Golden Age and Raynor McDonald style architecture. What Raynor did in this town, you know, is is such a great great example of his work and exactly how and and it's why it fits so well in the low country the ability to really enhance the features of the golf course on relatively flat property and so the idea when it was pitched was really about, listen, we're a historic town. We're a sophisticated town. We deserve a historic, sophisticated golf course to call our own. And so when we really dug down into it and started talking about the history of Rainer and the experience in the Lowcountry, it was, it was, a, it was an easy pitch to get people behind the idea of bringing these template holes to the table and really trying to create that experience for the public daily fee player.
2: Yeah, and I think, obviously, they're getting a drastically different experience than what they had. Talk about how much of the how much new stuff is out there. What are the biggest, let's um, say, defining characteristics of Muni today versus what was?
1: Yeah, sure. So, the greens themselves were all completely rebuilt and are roughly about 50% bigger, 50 to 60% bigger than they were before much bolder contouring and essentially and like I said because that golf course was built in the 20s and we had that you know we had that influence it wasn't a rainer as many people might have said over the course of the years, but in 1929, a lot of the same laborers that built the Country Club and built Yeamans Hall were going there, and these were the only two examples of golf in Charleston. So, you know, they'd go across town, take a look, and say, okay, let's go build that. And it was a bad game of telephone, is what it became. But you still got a lot of the same features, and so there was a lot of those big rectangular pads that were there that we were able to take these, you know, satellite dish greens that had just atrophied over the years and expand them back out into those corners, and then accelerate just by sharpening the edges a little bit, elevating really no more than six inches to a foot in most green complexes, but creating some bolder contours. And one of the great things about working on a municipal golf course where you know that the limits are never going to be pushed in terms of green speed was the freedom of being able to create some bold contouring in the greens. Um, I can tell you, you know, opening day, those greens were running nine and a half. And I was listening to people walk off that golf course saying they can't keep these greens at 12 like this. It's just going to be too much. And so it's, it's really good to create some perceived green speed rather than actual green speed because it takes a lot of pressure off of your maintenance. Um, you know, in terms of the the architecture, and um, I lost my train of thought. Andy, tell me what we, what, what was your question? I can't even remember it. I can't SV. either. <laughs> it, you know,
2: I don't I don't even remember. But uh, <laughs> you know, it,
1: what you know, the, so let's talk, yeah, talked about the
2: defining features. The Defining
1: but, features. So, so let me say first. So there's there's twelve template holes out there. There's eleven at the Country Club of Charleston, and there's thirteen at Yeamans Hall. And of those templates, I think the ones that will stand out the most to people and where the biggest physical change to the property came was the corner of the golf course that's 11, 12, 13, and 14. At that point, you kind of leave kind of the Parkland style of the golf course, cross the road and head down towards the river into something that feels much more linksy. And all of a sudden now you've got, you're playing Redan, Cape road and short in that order and so I think having that corner of the golf course with those very recognizable template holes and the views that were created simply by we we eliminated about two and a half acres of new growth forest that was kind of blocking the view of the river and in its place we dug a rather large lake that's in between golf holes primarily for stormwater and also to create generate the material to elevate some of these holes that were sitting in the floodplain so there was a lot of functionality to what we did and then the architecture just became the fun part
2: yeah and obviously talk about the functionality i think i visited uh, it was probably a perfect day to visit because i i saw You know, all of all of the existing courses, the original courses issues. And I think that's beyond, you know, the increase in design. Talk about just the functional design things that you did to make it a better golf course day in, day out.
1: Sure. So drainage, obviously, being in a low country and being at a very low elevation as Muni is, You know, the biggest thing that that we did was create better drainage and elevated some of those holes that were along the flood in the floodplain along the river. Some holes were elevated as much as five to seven feet from where they were before, others just six to twelve inches is all it really took. But you mentioned, you know, you came on a day when we had a king tide, which is basically a seven and a half or eight foot tide. And I can remember being out there days and watching the tide come in across the fifteenth fairway and literally reach the far end of the fairway and just thinking my god how are we going to do this and the way we were able to do it was actually by creating digging out a pond creating a better dike system that had been there and just elevating that to kind of combat what is these rising tide levels that we're seeing in the low country and all of a sudden now what we have is a firm and fast golf course that should stay that way that's got the appropriate drainage and and a big thing in charleston too is we talk about living with water because you ain't going to get rid of it we're we're at sea level and it's not going anywhere And so the biggest part of it was moving the water out of the areas of play, getting it off to the edges, into ditches, into new ponds, things that didn't come into play and didn't become more penal in terms of the design and the way the golf course plays, but functionality wise provide a place for the water to get off to so that you can keep those fairways and those center lines firm
2: yeah I think anybody that's worked or has intimate knowledge about you know working in a at a municipal project or just any project in general what were some of the biggest challenges of the project over the course of the of the year and a half
1: you know I think that um, certainly working in a municipal setting in a government setting there, there's always uh, there's always a, a maybe not the sense of urgency that you know that you need to have as a golf course builder. Um, and as a golf course architect knowing, hey, the, the clock's ticking, we got to grow in to hit. I, I can't wait for your seventh person to sign off on this so that I can get pipe in the ground so that I can plant grass. Trying to educate people on that perspective and kind of with that, uh, that mentality is is a tough thing um and so i think that's part of the reason why a lot of these municipal projects don't get done in this kind of unique manner where it truly was a city-led project i think the vast majority of what we've seen with these municipal projects around the country recently have been the takeovers where you get a foundation that comes in and says hey we're going to take it we're just going to lease it from you you guys are completely hands off and honestly i I'm kind of proud of the fact that that's not one of these. I think that the fact that the city is going to still run it, that it is still the city's wholly and 100%, and and it's something for them to be proud of. Um, We have got a great park system in the city of Charleston, and this should be the crowning jewel of that. And so, um, you know, I'm I'm actually quite pleased that we didn't have to go to the level of privatizing to get action. Do you think
2: also with that there's an enhanced sense of pride not just with you know the city as a whole all the way down through the maintenance team that worked on the project like do you think that is going to lead to where we maybe see less atrophy you know on the golf course in the future you know what that sad tale that so many municipalities see is where green shrink fairway shrink do you think because you know the city went through it with you and your team that you'll see A longer lasting product than Uh, typically.
1: I sure hope so. I think that there's so many people who care deeply about it, and a lot of those people are the people who are working there um, and that have been there for decades in some cases. And so I really do think that'll be the case in the community involvement on this project as well. I mean, we had volunteer days, we had volunteers planting the landscaping on that on a beautiful November day. And to hear guys now going out there and playing say, Hey, I, I, I planted that dogwood, you know, I think that there. There is a sense of pride that comes with it that I hope will translate into better course care, that will translate into long-term conditioning, and, and a sense of pride that I hope everybody in Charleston can have in it.
2: So quickly, before we get out of here, we'd be remiss to not talk about Patriot's Point and your involvement there and potentially what could happen there in the future.
1: Sure. Yeah. So Patriots, I think, is um, is an incredible site. We've got a ton of frontage on Charleston Harbor. Yeah,
2: explain what Patriots Point is today. So uh, so
1: for folks that may not know, Patriots Point Links is an existing public daily fee golf course that's situated on Charleston Harbor, just across the harbor from downtown Charleston, um, at, right in Mount Pleasant. And so and it was actually an old dredge site, not dissimilar to uh, Toledo, as we've talked a little bit about. And so the uh, you know, it, it's one that the site visually is incredibly stunning. And the golf course is very mediocre. And the idea is it is really a great opportunity to create something fully from scratch there that hopefully will be, like we talked in the beginning, a golf course that's good enough to come play, not just one that's good enough to play while you're here. And, and where that fits into the market is it'll continue to be public resort upscale resort is kind of where we're looking at and I think there's enough room there to really create a golf course that can challenge the best players in the world be very playable and visually stunning um, for any visitors and uh, one quick little cute note is the fact that you know our 17th and 18th holes which will primarily stay the same there and I was standing on the 17th green looking across at the historic lower peninsula of downtown Charleston and I'm standing there looking across this big open marsh and you can kind of see a little bit of the harbor and then all you see is the battery south of broad neighborhood all the church steeples and I'm looking at that going gosh this looks really familiar to me and I started thinking back and really I realized that from that tee, it's about the same distance from the far end of St. Andrews back into town as it is from de- from there to downtown Charleston, and the visual is quite similar in a lot of ways because of this old historic town. And it just kind of, as I was sitting there looking at it, it, it gave me a sense of responsibility for the site. I feel like it really is a, is a big opportunity. It
2: with. With that, designing upscale, where you're talking upscale resort versus what you did in at the Muni, what can you what more freedom does upscale or uh, upscale resort model give you than you know a daily fee municipal or is the process pretty similar?
1: I would honestly say the process is pretty similar. Um I think for a long time, you know when it was all about longer, harder is better. That may not have been the case. And, and I know I've I'd, I've heard and, and seen the instance where, well, you can't do this. It's a resort course. It's not a private course. Or you can't do this. It's a municipal course, not a, not a resort course or a private course. And in reality, you know, the golf course architecture that we've brought to Charleston Municipal that I intend on bringing to Patriots Point, which, by the way, will not look the same as Charleston Municipal, should be readily playable for everyone. The challenge, and as Pete always said, you can never challenge the best players in the world physically. You have to challenge them mentally. And for me, probably as it is for many, short grass is kind of that ultimate equalizer for people. And so I, I'm big on short grass. I'm big on creating those areas that, that really creates an opportunity for the, for the average guy to putt it up and two putt and the good player to have to think. And when you've created that thinking in a good player, you've done your job um because good players don't like to think and um and when you've made them think and given them options then you've challenged them and that's the goal that we all have
0: and now back to me and andy picking up right in the midst of our conversation about charleston muni
2: you know i think what i love about the project is it, it it had a purpose like it had a vision it wasn't like we're just going to brush up our course and we're going to spend a bunch of money to fix our drainage while we're at it we're going to make something that's representative of our, of our city our historic city and our and our golf community like it gives the public an opportunity to see you know they aren't exactly like the the templates that you see at country club of charleston or Yemen's, but they give the average municipal golfer a wildly different Golf experience than what you would get at almost every other municipal. Like a another one that is similar is Mount Prospect in Chicago, which mm-hmm. of course another town with two Raynor designs in Chicago Golf and, and Shore Acres. You know, and what I kept thinking about was your podcast with Blake, uh, the School of Architecture, where he talked about sense of place. Like it gave it a real sense of place, and that's the thing I loved about the project. Like I, you know, as somebody that has seen a lot of the Raynor stuff, has written about rainer templates extensively like i could quibble with a few things out there like in the in the execution of a few things but at the end of the day i couldn't get over it, it was really fun it's affordable it's 25 dollars for a resident to play and i think like one of the biggest things is it, it exposes like the regular golfer to like a different style of architecture which i think is so valuable
0: yeah and it, and it's not just it wasn't done just because Rainer is fashionable right now. It was done because there are courses in the Charleston area that you've mentioned, Yeamans hall and country club of Charleston that are Seth Rainer golf courses that are on properties that are correct me if I'm wrong, but pretty similar yeah. to what Charleston municipal occupies. Yeamans hall goes out to a kind of marsh side location on a few of its holes. Country club of Charleston, of course, is uh, a lot of the course sits along these tidal marshes that are so representative of this low country region. You know, that's a that's a very distinctive landscape in that area. And Charleston Municipal has that property. That is so valuable for a municipal course to have a property that is as tied to its place as that one. And now they have introduced some architecture to the course that resembles these other courses that have been there that kind of define the golf culture in the city, in the 1920s and they've brought that vibe to this municipal golf course that residents can play for 25 dollars, and so it should be clear that this is not a golf twitter thing this is not a golf podcast thing where they're like oh seth rainer's hip now let's let's get in on that this is very much a charleston thing
2: yeah and most importantly the golf course doesn't flood at high tide or with a quarter inch of rain <laughs> that, that's yeah. the most important thing is that the back nine is able to be used every day. Yeah. So I think that the biggest win of all of it is it just straight up
0: functions better. So what are, what are a couple of holes out there that you would like to highlight that you think are pretty cool?
2: I mean, the back nine's so cool when it gets down. And you, you, know, you play 10, it's got a crazy green. Um, and then you go to 11, which is the Redan. I think the Redan slope is a little weird, it's right in the middle rather than up at the front. It doesn't have that kicker. so that, But then that Redan, it plays right down to the bridge. And then the holes, there's a cape hole that plays out. It's a fun cape hole. And then they've got the road that comes back. And then a short hole. Short hole is wonderful. That green is really severe. The fu- thumbprint, like you can play some really fun shots with the thumbprint. The thumbprint's almost in the middle of that is almost like a punch bowl. You know, in, in in a way where you can really play them up off a bank and into it. Uh, and anything you miss is going to be a really tough putt. And then you got a really neat maiden green. Um, the it, you got to hit really good shots on on the next hole, the 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 fifteenth. Then there's some really, I think some of his is more subdued greens. Like the seventeenth is is a neat green. Um, and the ninth, really love the ninth green too, but. It's it's a really, it's a fun golf course and it shows like $3 million complete renovation. It doesn't mean it has to be boring. They didn't spend a crazy amount of money when you think about, you know, they had a 1929 golf course that didn't have any money put into it for essentially almost a hundred years and they put money into it. And just because you put a small sum of money into it doesn't mean that the architecture has to be bland. like interesting architecture doesn't cost any more money than bland architecture
0: yeah you've been beating that drum for years and i think the message is maybe starting to sink in but there are still a lot of people who don't quite believe it
2: well then you just see almost every municipality will just hire i don't want to bang on people but like they'll hire somebody that's been doing work around the area for 30 years and they build just the same kind of stuff that was there it's not I think the neat thing about it too is the business models flipped there where now because they have something interesting they're going to charge 60 bucks to out-of-towners and they expect to make money it's been a money loser for the for the city forever and they now expect to make money their maintenance budget is more but they because of that out-of-town revenue you know you're getting 3x essentially what you get for a resident
0: they're going to make money and that connects to one of my hobby horses which is that City golf courses should be attractions. They should be not only facilities that serve the public. Obviously that's the first priority. Let's serve the local public here, but they should also be things that people come to town to see just like people come and see other government facilities like, you know, the city hall building or whatever they come to see government architecture because it's interesting, it's cool and it's well maintained, but somehow. That logic does not always or rarely even does it extend to golf courses? Yeah, why don't cities treat their golf courses as these incredible assets that they can use to make their town a center of culture and a center of tourism? So rarely are golf courses given that kind of attention and that kind of credit where a city is saying this is a really interesting and worthy piece of architecture of art in its own right and it's not just a golf course you know in the sense that people can go out there and hit a ball around it has some history and it is well designed and people should come see it that's what i think charleston has now it's a course that people are going to see pictures of and they're gonna be like huh yeah i want to go see that you know just like people see pictures of the santa barbara courthouse i grew up in santa barbara california beautiful courthouse thousands of people go take tours of that courthouse every year it's not just a place where legal proceedings happen it's a beautiful work of art and for whatever reason cities have not given that same kind of attention and credit to golf course architecture
2: i think part of it though is golf's culture in general of exclusion and like i remember as a kid the public golf course that i grew up playing lake bluff they were very strict about us just being around or anybody that wasn't a golfer being around in this idea that a golf course can only be for golfers is the thing that holds so much of this back is that there can't be mixed uses for this land. And this idea that an area can only be for golf is incredibly idiotic. And, you know, I think it does golf no favors and, and, you know, it only help golf if you made it more open and accessible to people that might want to go for a walk, you know, and, and make areas that people can use. Because if they're around the game, they're much more likely to pick up the game. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're walking on a golf course, they're probably more likely to play golf eventually.
0: Yeah, I think that's so true that attitudes and perceptions need to change both among people who don't necessarily play golf in communities and people who do play golf. They all need to realize that they're part of the same community.
2: Do you think that golf architecture could ever get to the point where people who don't play golf would be interested in seeing the architecture of a golf course? Because sometimes when I explain to people, like my wife's friends that don't know anything, they ask me, oh, you cover golf? And I say, yeah. I do a lot of stuff on golf architecture. They're like, what's that? I'm like, well, you know, just like a building, a golf course is built by architects. And they're these and they're like, really, they like get interested in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And there are different schools of it. And there's a whole history and there are personalities involved. It's a fascinating subject. And that's exactly what I'm saying. Yes, absolutely. I think that there could potentially be people who don't play golf who would be interested in going and seeing Golf course architecture. I, I think that there's no reason that shouldn't be the maybe case. Maybe a
2: small number. Yeah.
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe. But you know, the other thing about it though, that's attractive is that if we turn golf courses into mixed use spaces, into welcoming spaces for non golfers, somehow. Obviously, there are safety issues that can't this can't be done immediately everywhere, but there are places where that have worked this out. It's not only cool to go see the architecture if you're interested in that kind of thing. But it's also cool just to go take a walk in a nice, open, n- naturalish setting. People love taking these walks around golf courses, as was proven when COVID shut down golf courses, and all of a sudden people flooded out to take walks around them. They're like, wow, this is beautiful out here. This is a really nice place to be.
2: Your buddy, the desk furniture maker.
0: Yeah, yeah. My friend in San Francisco who said we <laughs> they should shut down Presidio Golf Course because he and his family had a nice picnic out there. Okay, he's an idiot. But... <laughs> Basically, what he was saying was, I like this place. And yes. and that's I think that is the seed of a place where we could agree. Yes, I argued with him on Twitter. I probably didn't handle that very well. But the seed of it was he went and saw this place that he hadn't been before because he doesn't play golf and he thought it was a nice place to spend some time. And I think that that is not a threat to golfers. That really shouldn't be interpreted as a threat to golfers. It should be an opportunity where we're like, we can get the public interested in these places. We can all kind of come together as a community and invest in golf courses to turn them into the best versions of themselves, not only for the sake of golfers, but for the sake of the entire community, because municipal golf courses are part of their communities. They're not some separate thing. Anyway, that's, that's, my, that's my whole rant.
2: I agree. You're preaching to the
0: choir. Yeah. Well, if anybody disagrees, please send us an email. Maybe use Golf Facts. We'll... Yeah. Use Golf Facts if you're listening. If you're listening, Justine, we'd love to hear your thoughts about golf course architecture of the municipal varieties and otherwise. Uh, anyway. oh, one one
2: cool note. I'd be remiss if I did not mention this. Mm. Troy is trying to do something cool in the pump house.
0: Troy Troy Miller, architect behind the renovation of Charleston Municipal. Yeah.
2: So he's trying to do something cool with the pump house, and he's trying to collect golf balls from municipal courses from all over the country and then, like, affix them to the wall in the pump house, which is very visible on the golf course. It's, like, it's in between the 16th and the 17th hole. So he's trying to make something kind of unique there. Cool. So if you have, like, if you have surplus of golf balls from municipal golf courses across the country, send them to Troy or to the Charleston Muni golf course with a you know attention troy miller
0: okay cool so that's charleston municipal now we've kind of of gone backwards through your trip because you went to Charleston. you were going south you you went to charleston after you had already gone through asheville north carolina but we're going to go back to asheville north carolina now and talk about some of the golf around there and some of the reasons to go there it's not necessarily mentioned as a golf Destination. Yeah. But there, are, it's in North Carolina. So there's plenty of great golf courses, not only in the city, but in the area around there. But just to start off, Asheville itself is, I feel, a highly underrated town. I've been there. I haven't played golf there. I went there for a wedding one time with my wife and kid, and it was fantastic. Now, obviously, this was pre COVID. And so you probably didn't get to see. All the restaurants and stuff, and yeah, that's too bad. I,
2: I went into one of the famed breweries and and got to go beer, you know, <laughs> which it was good beer though, right? It was good beer.
0: It's a great brewery town. I forget what the names of the breweries are. I you know is the one that just
2: got bought. I went to Wicked. Is it Wicked something? Yeah, uh, I, I think I, it. That's what it is. It's a. good It's so cool. It, you know, one of the neat things. And I I don't want too many people to find out about this because, like, you know, I might want to move there someday. (laughs) I don't don't want people to drive up the prices, but they had only nine days over 90 degrees in Asheville last year.
0: Good Lord.
2: And then, you know, when we were there, it was the coldest time of the year. Yeah. It was still golfable. Yes. (laughs) It was 45. Like, it snowed one day. But it was 45, you know, and you could definitely play golf in the winter. You could play golf 12 months, 12 months of the year. You get seasons and it's not too hot. I, uh, I'm a big fan. And obviously we didn't get to experience as much of the food and, and, uh, beer scene or nightlife scene, but I'm looking forward to going back, uh, in, in different times. A. Because there's a lot of golf courses that I didn't get to see that I want to see. And that's really the main impetus, you know, is uh, I want to get back and see a ton of places. But we drove straight to Asheville. And I I talked about how it took like three hours to get to Northwest Indiana. It was like three in the morning when we were pulling into Asheville, and uh, we stayed in Black Mountain, which is a town just outside of Asheville, because we figured we're not going downtown. Why, you know? And it was this beautiful little mountain town. It was so cool; loved it. But we stayed there, and my wife was reading the Black Mountain website, uh, and she's like, "Oh, are you going to see the Black Mountain golf course?" And I was like, "I no. Like, you? Do you mean Asheville Municipal, which is you know one of the courses on my list?" And she's like, "No, the Black Mountain golf course." And I'm like, "Why would I go see that?" And she goes, "Well, it says here it was designed by Donald Ross." <laughs> so, you know, Josie of course had no sympathy for us being up till 3 driving. So, we were up at like 6:30 the next day. I got a huge coffee and and I went walk Black Mountain in the morning. And It was interesting. So front nine, like so many courses, the front nine is uh, Donald Ross routed. It's been monkeyed with a little bit, but you can see some really cool holes like shared fairways, just neat green sites. And it's as Black Mountain. It's in the foothills of the mountain. So it's got some good terrain, like not terrain you see every day. So the front nine I'm walking, I'm like, hey, that's pretty cool. You know, if they did some stuff that could be cooler, you know, there's some underlying issues at some places. Obviously, there's some drainage issues, which is a huge problem because there's houses being built all around, you know, on the mountain. So, like, you see this with a lot of mountain golf courses, um, old mountain golf courses. They have tons of drainage issues because the soil, there's nowhere for the water to go. Yeah. Cause the, the soil is very rocky. And then you've got development all around just throwing water onto the golf course. So, obviously, some drainage issues, but the front nine, very cool. And then you make the turn to the back, and there's a sign that greets you that's like kind of it winds through a neighborhood. And the sign says, like, this is strictly for golf activities. You know, it's very unsafe to walk here. (laughs) which is a dovetail of what we were just talking about yeah you know i'm on this back nine and i'm just like well that's not a very nice sign you know (laughs) like i'm in like basically a swamp the golf holes all of a sudden just they don't make sense they're fighting the terrain they're going into extraordinarily narrow corridors Mm -hmm. there's just nowhere to hit the ball you're seeing tee boxes right in landing areas of other holes for the next hole and you're like, what the hell is going on? And it was just nine holes crammed into this tiny little space mm. to build a golf course. And, and one of the things on the website that my, re- my wife read is that, you know, it was famous for the Donald Ross nine and its 17th hole, which was at one point the longest hole in the world, a par six. <laughs> and it was one of the most offensive holes I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> And this was after I was on the phone with uh, Stephen Britton because at this point I'm calling Stephen asking I have all these crackpot theories which I'll be getting into later.
0: Stephen Britton, su- superintendent,
2: superintendent Chevy Chase. We're we're ta- I'm talking with him and I'm telling him about how awful the holes are. And I turn <laughs> and I get onto the seventeenth and I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> I'm telling this is the
0: worst of all of them. You Desc- know, describe and, it a little. So par six, 17th hole. You tee
2: off and you hit the landing area. It's like the side of a mountain. So it's had like a very severe grade. Just to the left of of the fairway is a cart path and to the left of that is a creek. <laughs> so I went in the shop after and I asked him, I asked the guy about the 17th hole. I'm just like, hey, I got people like that 17th hole. He's like, well, it's you know, it's a famous hole i'm like yeah i'm like let me ask you in the summer when it's you know firm and kind of baked out can you hold the ball on the fairway at all and he and he looks at me and he just shakes his head just like <laughs> and i go so then does it hit the cart path to go in the creek and he was like yeah happens a lot <laughs> um but the, then the, the creek crosses like three more times it plays up to like a Ray green but you know the holes before it that we're sharing you know you got two holes in like a 40 yard wide corridor playing opposite directions I mean that's almost as offensive but anyways I'm, I'm walking and I'm talking to Steven because after about two holes I realized like golf shouldn't be here like traditional golf doesn't work on this site because there's not enough space for it And it's too severe and it doesn't drain. It's just and you just think about it from the maintenance side is that maintenance team there. You know, the front nine's pretty cool. And with a little work with drainage, you could make it really a really good nine, you know, and it would play really well. But then when I got on the back nine, I realized this is where they spend all their time. Mm -hmm. I walked in tennis shoes. The front nine, my feet weren't wet. The back nine, I'm walking through just like mud and you realize this is where all the problems are and where the maintenance team is just trying to make it playable. Yeah. And it's a terrible nine holes that shouldn't even be in existence in, in its current form. And then it came back to that sign at the start of the back nine. That's like, do not walk here. This is, this is only for golf. In reality, the oxymoron of it is that it should never have been for golf. And so I ta- I called Steven, you know, midway through this, because I was curious, like in my head, like, hey, if I told you I'm gonna cut your golf course by nine holes, what's your maintenance budget gonna be percentage wise? Just maintaining nine holes? You know, he he was like sixty to seventy percent. May if you have a really good super, maybe fifty five percent to seventy percent. And I started thinking about it, it's like, you know, this is a golf course, it's a small community, it's a small mountain town, it's clearly thriving. But there's only 18,000 people It's like with all the golf around, this would be better as a nine hole golf course. And they don't have a driving range. So you could take some of that back nine that's allegedly a golf course, turn it into a driving range, maybe a short course, which is perfect for that severe land and small corridors, you know, or. Convert it to just a park, like make it open lands for this growing, thriving community that's adjacent to the golf course. And all of a sudden, then more people are around the golf course.
0: Yeah, and, and doing these kinds of things makes so much sense for 18-hole courses that are struggling. And and we all know them. There's a bunch of them, in fact, that have Donald Ross front nines or, or purported Donald Ross front nines. And then a back nine that was added later that's not nearly as good because not not every architect is Donald Ross. And so this describes a lot of golf courses, certainly, that might just function better as nine whole courses. My my only response to that, my only disagreement with that general idea is that it has to be, and maybe it's not a disagreement, but it has to be extremely specific to each course.
2: Yes. Yeah. It's not a
0: blanket. Sometimes sometimes you have courses where one nine is really good. We all know them, where one nine is really good and the other nine is not so good. Pacific Grove Golf Course, my you know one of my favorite places in the world, near Monterey, California. Pacific Grove Municipal Golf Course has one nine that was built in the 30s that kind of goes through the neighborhoods inland. And it was designed by Chandler Egan. It was probably pretty cool at one time, but has been really compromised by the development around it. And by some moving around of the holes that has happened to accommodate parking lots, clubhouses, all that kind of stuff. And so it's not particularly good right now. There there are some pretty bad holes out there. There are some pretty good holes on that nine as well. And then the back nine is sublime. The back nine is in the dunes. It's just amazing. There are six amazing holes on that back nine, maybe seven. And so a lot of people have said, why don't we just chop off the front nine, make it a world-class you know, nine-hole golf course. And my response to that is not only does that front nine have a lot of history, in fact, more history than the nine in the dunes, but people use it like that course is super successful. The community uses that golf course. And so who am I to come in and say, it's not well designed enough for my tastes. We should shut it down. If the community uses it and it's successful, then great. The course is sustainable. Great. But if you have a course where there are, big problems financially maintenance wise environmentally primarily because of one poorly built nine then that's where you start exploring these solutions i think uh, which is what you're talking about with black mountain
2: Mm -hmm. and i think the course has done well with covid i like that and talking to the guy in the pro shop but i you know i did ask about the back nine i'm like is it always wet back there like and he was like oh yeah it's it's always wet they could do a lot better probably maybe it's nine holes in a short course Yeah. All of a sudden, that severe land makes for a great short course. You could play from high point to high point. You know, I think one of the things that the misconception is like severe land isn't really good for regular golf, but it's really good for short courses. Like if you give me a severe plot of land, it's probably hard to find 18 holes out on it. But you know what's really easy to do? Really easy to find par threes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, McVeigh's gauntlet at Sylvie's Valley Ranch, which I visited this past year, McVeigh's Gauntlet is probably built on the most severe piece of land that I've ever seen used for golf. And it's hard, but it's a bunch of par threes and it and it works. Yeah. That that is one possibility. Another is like driving range, practice facility. We we all know what makes the most money in the golf business. And that's a successful driving range.
2: And then and then the my thought was like you could go to the city and say, hey, we're going to nine, we're cutting our maintenance budget, but can we reinvest a portion of the money we're saving you into the golf course? Like, hey, we want to have one of the best nine-holers in the country, Mm -hmm. and that's something we think we can achieve. Like, the way it's currently constructed, they will never have a golf course that I would say is worth going to play unless you're there, right? But if they not redid, but they restored that, original Ross nine. And it, it, that's what it was. It's a really, it, it's got a ton of potential.
0: So black mountain, and then you went to Asheville proper Asheville municipal golf course. So tell me about that.
2: Uh, another Ross, this is like, if you want to see Donald Ross, there's Donald Ross everywhere within an hour and so many places that I didn't get to see. Cause we were only there for two days. You know, one of the neat things is even some of the private clubs, if you, if you're polite and ask nicely, they probably will let you come play. I know that's the case for country club of Asheville, which was re- redone by Rich Mandel. And I think Mimosa Hills is pretty open about unaccompanied guest play. The, um, Asheville Muni, obviously very historic. Donald Ross, you know, 1929. There's a golf channel piece on it if you search it. Cool place. For the most part, the corridors remain for the most part not too much monkey around with the original design. So, you know, it's very playable. The greens on the front nine, they play like low in the lowlands, you know, kind of, and then the back nine gets up into the into the more of the mountains. The front nine has a real, it it kind of winds around and it's it's pretty flat, some neat greens, and then it's got a great volcano green on the eighth and it plays. And then the ninth really starts some of the more dramatic land. Now, you know, one of the things with severe land, right, is you've got connector holes, holes that are just a means to get you to the next area that's really golfable. Right. And the 10th and 11th hole at Asheville Municipal are two connector holes uh, that Had some renovation work done at some point that have completely made them worse. There's like a raised bunker that was like wedged into this giant hillside and they've got homes on. and they play kind of in these like funnels. Mm -hmm. And again, this is a drainage issue. This is mountain golf. Like half of it being good is about just getting water off it because Asheville is a place it rains a lot too yeah and you can tell that all the work that's been done to it has just made it more of a drainage nightmare no grass in the fairway and it's just like a an example of like how if you hire the wrong architect you end up with something worse you know you spend a bunch of money to get worse you know i guarantee if they did nothing it would function better than it does now but those two holes then you get up into this like spectacular topography The 12th through the 17th is an incredible stretch. It's almost like on like a a foothill ridge. You play down in the lowlands and then you get up into like partway up the mountains and there's this big ridge that you're kind of playing along. Some really spectacular holes, some added bunkers that are in in carp paths. Like it's just one of those places where you go around and you're like, God, there's really good bones. It's really a great community asset. It's busy all the time. Tons around but it could be so much more it's just one of those where you look at it in that same vein of east potomac or mm-hmm. rancho park in la or, reynolds
0: park at winston-salem maybe
2: yeah where it works it's a great affordable asset for the community but if they went the route of a charleston or you know a just a pure yeah you wouldn't want to go the route of a charleston where you redid it but if you put three million into the place it could be really spectacular and, and one of those things you got to do if you're a golfer when you're in Asheville. And you could, they could compete with... An, I, the course that I didn't get to see that I really was disappointed that I didn't have time to see was Grove Park, which is now... It's tied to a, a hotel, uh, the Omni, and it's a Donald Ross course that's a little bit more upscale. But if they... They put three million dollars into that put into Asheville Muni. You could have a golf course that could compete with that. It could go punch for punch while providing the, the town a great asset.
0: Yeah, and again, Asheville super cool town, University Town, UNC Asheville is there. The brewery that we were trying to think of earlier is called Wicked Weed. Yes, which is very much a, uh, <laughs> a modern brewery name. Charleston and Asheville might not be the first places that come to mind when people think I'm going to go on a golf trip. Well, that's the cool thing about them, though, is you can go there and do other stuff. Do other like, stuff. In Charleston, you- we didn't even talk about Charleston culture. Yeah, which is the greatest food, music, like amazing place.
2: You know, I was there and I wanted to see these courses, but then you know, you want to get back so you can do stuff. And I was there with my family. Like, you know, these are places like. If you do your planning in advance and get the tee times early, you can go play golf and be back. The other thing is it's not an hour away, you know, you're you're 10 minutes away from where your your family is. So if you get an early tee time, you're there and you're back and and you got the whole rest of your day in some of the coolest cities. Yeah. City golf deserves a revival because it to me it's the coolest destination golf, you know, is is you go to a city and you get to experience the new culture and you have really cool nightlife. And I mean, I work in golf, so I I think my perceptions changed a little bit, but I really like going to a city and playing 18 holes and then hanging out the rest of the afternoon.
0: Yeah, totally. totally agree. That's our show for today. We should be back soon. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying the podcast, leave a rating or a view or both in Apple podcasts, really helps people find the fried egg. Thanks for listening.